This episode is brought to you by The Profit Line. Now, hopefully you guys recognize that I'm quite selective about the sponsors that I choose to partner with, but The Profit Line might just be in a league of its own, given that I was a customer of theirs for seven consecutive years while running my own company. The Profit Line is a boutique finance and accounting firm that provides a wide range of accounting services to small and medium-sized businesses, generating anywhere between 5 to $50 million in revenue or so. On a fractional outsource basis, they will do all of your bookkeeping, bank reconciliations, month-end accruals, tax compliance, financial statement preparation, and they'll work hand-in-hand with your auditors, among countless other things. When I purchased my business, I noticed that the books were a total mess. The company's accounting wasn't compliant with GAAP, they were overly complex, and they just didn't work for the company's new reality, which suddenly included auditors, a bank, investors, and a board. Because of this, I brought in the profit line within my first month or so as a CEO. And fast forward to seven years later, they were still there to help us get our books ready for an exit. We used them when we had no finance and accounting department to speak of and continued to work with them even as we grew our finance team to four people, including a CFO. For those of you currently running a business, visit theprofitline.com to learn more about how they may be able to help you. For those of you currently evaluating a target to acquire, the Profit Line also offers a high-level, affordable overview of a target company's current accounting systems, processes, and environment. This analysis can be used in conjunction with your QOV project, or it can be done in advance of it to ensure that there are no large red flags before you start spending the big bucks. Again, that's theprofitline.com. Hey everybody, welcome to this very special episode of In the Trenches. I am your host, Steve DeVitkos. Now I say that this is a special episode because today we are following a format that we have never utilized before. In today's episode, I will be interviewing four different CEOs of four different small and medium-sized businesses and asking them just a single question. That question is, what are some of the seemingly smallest changes that you've made that have had the largest or most outsized impacts? When taking over a new business, new CEOs often speak of operational low-hanging fruit, so to speak. So I wanted to ask this same question to four different CEOs to learn more about just what this low-hanging fruit tends to be. Importantly, I'll highlight that each CEO that I'll be speaking with today is at a very different stage of their journey. Betsy, who I'll begin the episode with, is still in her first year in the CEO seat. Sherritt, our next leader, has been CEO of his company for two years. Robin Kovitz has been leading her company for eight years. And finally, Adrian, our final CEO, ran his company for about seven years before a successful exit to a strategic acquirer in 2019. Does growth and success tend to result from a large number of seemingly small changes or a small number of larger changes? That is what we will endeavor to answer today, informed by four CEOs at very different stages of their respective journeys. As usual, a friendly reminder to each of you that I am an active investor in search funds and the companies that they acquire through my own firm, Mineola Search Partners. So if you're considering raising a search fund or are otherwise looking for your own small business to acquire, I'd love to speak with you. Now, on to today's show. Betsy Harbison, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Steve. 
Great to have you here. And before we dive into the question of the day, if you could please share with us a quick summary of what your company does and how long you've been running it for. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Betsy Harbison, located in St. Louis, Missouri, traditional searcher, um, and closed on soft trip 13 months ago now. Um, so definitely, you know, rounding the corner of year one. Um, soft trip is essentially a mini ERP system for tour operators. Uh, so software platform, um, a tour operator being anyone that packages up flights, hotels, activities, restaurants, all of that good stuff and sells it to the end consumer. So we're sort of a B2B mini ERP system for them. Awesome, a software company close to my heart. So yes. I am particularly interested in your answers um, to the question of the day, which is as a CEO who's been on the job for about a year now, can you share with us some of the seemingly small changes that you've made that have had an outsized impact, whether it's financial, operational, or even personally? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I actually love this question because I think the first year, you know, while you're getting your feet um, under you is really just a series of, of small changes. Uh, but the first one for us was really getting... Um, some sort of operating system in place. You know, this was actually a carve out software deal, which is a little bit unique in the search space, but really jumped into a business that had never had a lot of structure before. And by structure, I mean clear vision, clear path, clear goals, clear priorities. And so, you know, we closed in October of 2021. And by December, we'd started the EOS implementation process, so entrepreneurial operating system. I think many people are are quite familiar with it. It's sort of beautifully simple and intuitive, but it had an immediate impact on the business. Um, I think first of all, in some in these small businesses, everyone sort of has their head down day to day, you know, fighting off what's coming towards them. But it's really important to pick your head up and start having some of these high level business conversations, and it allows that to happen. Um, and also for me, it was also an immediate, you know, team building opportunity, jumping into a business and we're saying, hey, let's pick our heads up and let's actually think about this business and where we need to go moving forward. Um, so that was great. I mean, I think the two things that really stand out, first of all, is having a North Star goal, um, you know, an immediate sort of 10 year target of where do we need to be and get being fully aligned around that. And that comes up in many of our conversations. And then I think the second is when you jump in, you know, there are a ton of things that you really want to work on. Everything's important, but when everything's important, nothing's important. And so how do you start to make a list and how do you start to chip away at the problems that you want to solve within the business? Um, that was extremely impactful. You know, I think everyone was sort of running around, we need to do this, we need to fix this, um, let's focus on this. But when you have, you know, very clear quarterly goals, it makes it so much easier to say, this quarter we are focusing on X, Y, and Z, and everything else is sitting off to the side on an issues list, and we know we will get to it. But our priority in the next 90 days is figuring out these five or six issues, and everyone's aligned around that. So that, you know, we... We started implementation in month two, but throughout the first 12 months, I mean, it's been incredibly impactful. I I have a few follow-up questions. I also implemented EOS in my business um, and found it to be similarly impactful. There are other operating systems out there. Rockefeller Habits is, is one that comes to mind. Um, interestingly, 
I implemented EOS in roughly my second, maybe even my third year. Uh, unfortunately, I just wasn't aware of the system at the time. Um, I'd love to ask you, how did you think about when to implement the system? And were you worried about implementing it too early as a new CEO? If you could speak to that, that would be great. I was. I was actually, that that definitely crossed my mind um, that this was happening too early. I think what, a, uh, what sort of swayed me to, to let's get this figured out right now is we were sort of coming from nothing. Um, you know, it wasn't, oh, we sort of know what our goals are for next year, or we sort of know what our priorities are over the next three months. Um, there wasn't a lot there. And so I think it was important for me to start setting up this structure sort of immediately. I mean, and it's also a system, I don't know what your, um, your experience was with it, but it did take us a few quarters to really get in a rhythm as well. You know, you set goals that are maybe too lofty or not enough. And it takes you a few quarters to really level set on what's the right amount of wood to chop essentially in a 90 day period. And so now coming into our fourth quarter with the system, I feel like we're sort of rocking and rolling, which is a, a nice feeling. That's great. Now, in the spirit of focusing on the smallest changes possible, I'm going to ask you a difficult question that I've not prepared you for. So let's see where this goes. <laughs> okay. Um, EOS is a wonderfully simple system that might be its most attractive characteristic, but there's a lot to it, right? And in fact, they, by definition, an operating system covers in many respects, substantially all of your business. So as you think about the entire system, if you were in a hypothetical world, only allowed to implement one part of the system, you know, one change, one new addition, just one component of it, which one have you found to be the most impactful or the most powerful? Oh gosh, one. Okay. Um, let's see. I think for me, it's, they're sort of linked together. So I'm not trying to cheat here, but for me, I think it's the issues list and then setting quarterly rocks. Mm. Um, it just has brought a lot of focus internally to the team. Um, so, you know, another issue might pop up, but we're able to say, you know, that's noise for now. We will get to it when we get to it. Our top priorities are these five or six rocks that we have outlined and that's that. And it, it even comes up in conversations, you know, hey, what about this? And we go down a bit of a rabbit hole and someone on our team might even say, it's on the issues list. It's not for today. It's not for this quarter. We'll get there eventually. And so I think it's brought a lot of focus. So I, that's sort of the issues list and the 90-day rocks, but probably the 90-day rocks most impactful. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, at the risk of putting words in your mouth, the theme that I'm detecting there is prioritization. And yes. um, prioritization is, is something else that you mentioned to me before we hit the record button in terms of... Um, you know, seemingly small change, it's had a, that's had a big difference for you. But before we get there, uh, change number two has to do with pricing. So I'd love to learn more about that one. Yes. Um, so I know pricing is sort of a, a hot topic this year, um, especially. So coming into the business, I was sort of under the impression, candidly, that um, the prior owner had been, you know, pulling the, the price lever uh, a fair amount and that, you know, there really wasn't a lot of pricing room in this business moving forward. Um, now that I, you know, this was six months ago, so sort of halfway through my first year, you know, really started to dig into this, especially over the summer, you know, inflation's increasing. What do we do? Um, really started to dig into our pricing strategy and where our customers were 
sort of priced, um, which candidly was all over the map a bit. Um, so we did a one time, I would call this a, a level set price increase back in June. Um, that was pretty substantial to get everyone, you know, sort of level set in terms of number of users, level of customization in the system. Historically, we would customize things, which as you can imagine, requires a lot of ongoing support that wasn't necessarily reflected in our monthly um, subscription payments. So just a one-time level set for the business, um, uh, you know, depending on the customer, sort of the 20 to 30 percent range. Um, but it was just an opportunity to start to bring a method to the madness of it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was very impactful halfway through the year. So this is a uh, another topic that's near and dear to my heart. So I have a, a few follow-up <laughs> questions for you. Um, first, you mentioned 20 to 30% roughly as the magnitude. Um, how did you decide by how much to increase prices? And the reason why I asked that question is because uh, my experience as a rookie CEO was largely characterized by fear. I was worried that if I raised prices too much, that we would lose a whole bunch of our customer bases. And, and I appear to not be alone in that. My experience is that first-year CEOs tend to undershoot as it relates to price increases. So yeah. I'd love to learn more about how you decided by how much to increase those prices. Yes. Oh, gosh, that is a great question. And to be honest, you know, right in line with what you just mentioned, I think when I first started this exercise, I think I maybe sent out the notices in June, so maybe started this exercise in April or May, I was in sort of the five to 6% camp, candidly. Um, and I think over time, which is, I'll tell you how I started to get more comfortable around it, but I, I sort of started in that camp as well. And, you know, first six months, don't want to rock the boat. Um, you know, we can point to inflation, but, you know, 20 to 30 percent is a lot higher. So I, I used a couple of things. I think, first of all, I've been very involved in all of our sales processes the first six months. And so I had a decent sense of where we were coming in in terms of our competitors. A lot of our sales processes involve RFPs, and we sort of know, you know, based on our, our pricing menu um, quotations there, where we were falling in the market. So part of it was just a level of comfort of, we know what the options are out there and we know how they're priced. And candidly, our product is much more feature rich and, and I mean, obviously I'm biased, but the best, the best one out there. Um, so we knew, I, I had a pretty good sense of competitive pricing, uh, first of all. Second, I mean, it was, it was looking at the size of customer and the number of users and how much value they're really deriving on a daily basis. I mean, I think our platform really helps our customers in two ways. First of all, it's just an efficiency, um, you know, an efficiency play, elimination of manual tasks. You have one source of truth. Um, if you have our system in place, there's not a ton of, you know, you might not need those extra three heads to manually do some things and also driving revenue from a flexibility of the system perspective. So it's just also a sense of how much value we're actually driving for our customers on a daily basis. That was a piece of it. And then, you know, finally, I wouldn't say renewals, renewals happen sometimes historically, you know, um, maybe one year they would happen, one year they didn't happen. And so really taking into account how long has it been since the last price increase? How have they grown in users and complexity? Um, so really try, I mean, it is sort of an art. I love pricing to be a science, but it is sort of an art as well. So mm -hmm. it was sort of competitive analysis, 
knowing where we stand in the market, understanding the value our customers are deriving from the platform, and then also, you know, the customer specific details of, of users and specific complexity of their platform, given we um, historically have customized a, a good amount. I'd also be curious to learn, <clears throat> I mean, if you're anything like me, I suspect you thought a lot about how to communicate, when to communicate. I mean, I agonized over every period and comma and word in my outreach email that uh, communicated that we were increasing prices. I would be curious to learn what was the actual response from your customers in response to this price increase? And how did that actual response compare to what you thought it might be before you hit the send button? Oh, great question. So I... Couldn't agree more. I mean, agonized over it. And also, you know, I, I like to tinker with things. <laughs> so, I, you know, I could tinker with pricing or in a model for, for weeks on end, but at some point, you know, it, it needs to go out. Um, so I, I did expect some pushback for sure. Um, I would say on the whole, this price increase was broadly accepted. So I hope anyone listening, if, um, lesson learned there. Um, and I think for a couple of reasons, I mean, obviously the macro environments at play here, of course, and uh, especially over the summer too, we have developers, we have technical talent. I think everyone, if there are any software people listening, you know, it's hard to uh, to retain technical talent as well. So maybe not single digit inflation, let's think double, right? So I think that message resonates a lot. People get it, they understand. Um, and then just also, you know, we are sort of on this quest to become more product roadmap driven. And also the messaging of, look, we want to invest in the product for you here. You know, this isn't, this is really for you. It's so we're able to have the right resources and to continue to deliver a great product. So I think those two messages um, really resonated, but yeah, not not a ton of, of pushback actually. That's great. That's great. And that's actually pretty representative of the typical experience, um, at least from, from my view. Okay, let's get on to change number three. Yes. And so I'm calling this um, change, incorporating the word no into your company vocabulary. <laughs> um, I can, this is sort of my favorite one, actually. And I can tell you what it meant for us as a software business. But then I also had a real world example, actually, that I think sort of beautifully fits into this. But um, so as a sort of a mini ERP software platform, we've been around about 20 years, I would say historically, Customization was thought of as sort of a great source of revenue for the business. Um, now, I'm sure if there are any software people listening, they are cringing currently, but um, that that was how it was for the last 20 years. And, you know, some customizations can make sense, but a lot do not. And it's sort of, it's bad in three ways is sort of how I would think about it. I mean, it's it's not great for our customers if we sort of take on customizations with not a lot of discipline it does lead to bugs, which impacts their experience down the road. Um, sometimes we'll do customizations that are candidly outside of our wheelhouse, um, and it doesn't serve our customers to do something for them if we cannot do it well. I think we'd be much better served to say, hey, this actually is not something that's that's in our wheelhouse. Here's the API. We highly recommend you, you know, take off and run with it so you can build something that works for you. Um, and then I think there's a level of discomfort too. If we build something and one customer is using it, I think that that makes that customer uncomfortable, right? So um, 
that's sort of what's not great about this customization. And it, it's bad for us, of course, because we're a software business. We've got to focus on maintaining custom code versus, you know, actually building, you know, things into the product that benefit the entire customer base. So anyway, we um, started incorporating the word no into our vocabulary. We set up sort of this new committee system where on Tuesdays we review all requests coming in. We have a very disciplined approach to how we review it. We truly think about, is this good for our customer? Um, will this actually benefit them? Are we able to execute on this well? Um, and that's been unbelievably helpful for our business, I believe. Um, and I was sort of thinking, I know not everyone is a software person, but I had a sort of a real world experience happen to me also in the last 12 months when I was attempting to find the right, you know, third party accounting firm. The first one I worked with, you know, everything I asked for, I need an opening balance sheet. I need sales tax help. I need X, Y, and Z help. It was yes, yes, yes. And in fact, that was actually quite outside of their wheelhouse, right? They, in their effort to appease me, they actually, I, I think it, it really deteriorated the trust between us because they told me yes on these things they weren't able to complete or do well. Um, now I'm with a great third-party accounting firm that's also search, um, it's a search fund business, but um, they're great. And I remember that first day in onboarding, it's okay, here are your needs. Here's what we can do. This is right in our wheelhouse. Here are the things that we are not able to do. And we recommend that you go find outside help for these, you know, three items. And I said, perfect. You know, I can work with no, <laughs> I can't work with yes. And then, you know, my expectations aren't met. So I just think it's really important to, to draw lines. And I know a lot of small businesses want to say yes to everything, to all of their customers. But at the end of the day, sometimes it's not good for your customers, nor is it good for you. Yeah, it's such an important point. I think, I mean, this is a particularly acute issue in software, but I think in substantially all lower middle market or micro cap businesses, you know, in my experience, it's entirely reasonable. Maybe it's even expected for a company to say yes to everything when they're just starting out. Let's say when they're growing from zero to 5 million in revenue or something to that effect, but to get from five to 20 million in revenue that approach just doesn't scale. Um, but in my experience, introducing no to the vernacular of a company, while it's entirely the right thing to do, it is really hard. Um, and in fact, it, it in my experience, um, required like a big cultural change. I mean, we had people who had been working there for 20 years who had been conditioned over the course of 20 years just to, when a customer said jump, their first response was how high. Can you talk to like some of the, maybe the unanticipated cultural difficulties that may or may not have popped up as you've implemented this change? Oh gosh, great question. I mean, we we definitely had a bit of the same situation, right? 20 years of just saying, yes. Um, I will say I, it's not something that happens overnight. I think it's a message that you have to continue to discuss, continue to hammer home, you know, for example, in our committee meetings that we've set up, that's something we're talking about every week. Is this good for us? Can we do this well? Is it good for our customers? So it's not something that happens overnight, but when you start to repeat that, I do think the culture starts to shift a bit. Um, so it, it's been difficult. It just takes time, I would say, more than anything. Strangely, with our customers, I think you know, that's never a fun message to deliver, especially in your first three months 
um, as CEO, that's a very hard message to deliver is I know you've been, <laughs> I know you're used to sort of saying, I need this and I need it next week, go do it. But here's how that's actually not good for you in the long run. And here's how it's not good for us. Obviously a very hard message to deliver, but I think in a strange way, it, they've sort of appreciated it um, because they know that we're being thoughtful and taking a line and saying no to things that we're not able to do well. I, I think that's also how you build trust too with your customers. So in a, in a strange way, it's not the most fun message to deliver, but I think over time they've started to appreciate it a bit and understand why why the word no is sometimes important. Yeah, yeah. Such an important lesson, whether um, whether one is running a software company or not. Betsy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, congratulations on your one-year anniversary and best of luck in the years to come. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Share it, Ross. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into the question du jour, can you please um, provide us with some context? Give us a quick summary of what your company does and how long you've been running it for. Yeah, great. Um, so Cardata provides the simplest and most cost-effective way for companies to empower their employees to use their personal car for work. Um, so many times, uh, you have field reps or service reps that need to drive, um, every day for work, whether it's, you know, you're selling to your local accounts or you're servicing, um, something related to pharma. So it, it, uh, you know, we, we provide the technology and service to, to empower those folks to use their personal car. Awesome. And how long have you been running the company for? So we've been running it just under two years. We're, we're hitting the two-year anniversary mark in February. Excellent. So we are profiling four different CEOs on this episode, and you feel, fit into what I've loosely described as the settled in, or at least settling in bucket, roughly two years or so on the job. So um, utilizing that lens, I'll ask you the same question that I'm asking each of our CEOs in today's episode, which is... Can you please share with us some of the seemingly small changes that you've made that have had an outsized impact, whether it's financial, operational, or even personal? Yeah, so I, I would probably start with the marketing piece of this. Um, when we were, when we were exploring acquiring the business, the the messaging was pretty technical. Um, the business was framed up as a consulting business, which it it really truly wasn't. Um, so ultimately, we uh, we really try to simplify the the messaging around the brand. So we went from Cardata Consultants down to Cardata, uh, the domain URL from CardataConsultants.com to Cardata.co. We re redesigned the website to really nail down what is our key value pitch. Um, and I think anytime we send folks our way, it's it's pretty crystal what we do based on based on the uh, the website. So it's it's really helped us kind of clearly communicate to the market who we are, what we do, why why we're, you know, doing what we do and and it's been it's been helpful. Now, would you classify this as a fundamental change in the business or is this a change in the messaging and the the underlying business is um, reasonably similar? Yeah, it's definitely a change in the messaging. Nothing's ultimately changed in the products that we've offered. 
Um, but it's, it's more about how we present to the market, um, you know, being tech, tech first focused, um, reinforcing what's, what's driven the, you know, the business in the past, which has been our, our support, um, and, and product teams. So it's, it's definitely more of a, a messaging and vi- visual piece to this. And that, in my experience, this is not abnormal. In fact, um, in my own company, having purchased it from technical co-founders, I had the same issue. One could spend 30 minutes on our old website and still not be entirely sure what it is that we actually did. Um, And as an investor, I've seen this a few different times now. So this is not something that is atypical. In terms of changing the messaging, share it. was this something that you guys did utilizing internal resources, like an internal marketing team, for example, or did you partner with an external service provider to help you um, change the messaging? You know what? It's funny. You have these agencies that are pitching, pitching you, you know, 50, hundred grand to, to, to do all this stuff. Right. Um, ultimately I, and a small kind of group of, of folks internally, just, just did it internally. Um, so, you know, whether it was the logo whether it was the design of the website, we we did I think for under six grand. So it was it was pretty um, I call it gunslinging, but we definitely took more of a, an internal cost cost focused approach to this. So clarifying, streamlining, simplifying your messaging has yielded meaningful benefits for you. Does an example or two come to mind in terms of like what kinds of benefits have accrued to you as a result of making this change? I think anytime we're talking to people that don't know the business, um, they're coming with a bit more knowledge to these discussions than I, I found was was occurring because they understood already what we did, who we were, um, what we were selling. And so, you know, the first 15 minutes of any conversations now not dedicated to walking through a product suite and solution suite. It was really designed to, um, you know, value creating discussion points. So it's it's helped from a, from a sales perspective, I would say. Excellent. Before we hit record, uh, we talked about two other uh, decisions that fall under this category of asymmetric benefit relative to the time and energy and cost that was made. So maybe we can move on to change number two. Yeah. So I would say the biggest, um, I think the biggest shift for us as a business has been the the team growth has has been pretty tremendous. We, we grew from 15 people to over 70 within two years. So it's, it totally transitioned from being a family business to being, you know, really a team-based business. And, and with that comes different value systems that were important to my partner and I, um, you know, whether it would be continuous improvement, whether it's bravery, whether it's you know, being adaptable, those were things that were important to us that not necessarily were critical in the, in the old regime. So we um, we really needed to think through how do we build a high performance culture around these these mission um, and, and and values, and so we went through a, a whole mission, vision, values exercise, which again seems kind of trivial, but ultimately is is driving behavior internally. I'd love to focus on this because so many CEOs think that mission and vision and values are ultimately just kind of hollow platitudes that sit in a few posters that reside on the office wall somewhere. And that's about where their value starts and stops. Um, I have a a couple of follow-up questions on this. First of all, 
what framework did you use, if any, to actually go through the process of creating or discovering your mission, vision, and values? Was it something that you just kind of did on your own? Did you use a book? Did you use a framework? What did you guys actually do? I would say this was an HR-led initiative in the sense that we collected data from our employees about you know, what was important to them so that we incorporated the existing um, you know, pieces of information that we may have missed and just our own conversations, but Mike and I really owned the the mission and vision, and really what that meant is, you know, why do we exist, and and where do we want to go, right? And we have competitors in the space that focus on, on other things, and we wanted to crystallize our key focus. Um, so that's where the mission and vision really stemmed from was was our conversations and and, and our strategy. Uh, the values incorporated both, I would say, team team based feedback, and then also. Um, you know, again, what was important to Mike and I. So there wasn't really a a hard framework that we followed, but it was it was an HR initiative. Now, can you respond to a skeptical CEO who might be listening to this and saying, "Well, hey, I've got five fires that I got to put out in my inbox right now. I don't have time for this fluffy stuff." Maybe you can speak to that skeptical CEO and perhaps speak to, at a very tactical level, like how do you actually use these things? Do you use them in hiring decisions, promotional decisions, you know, products to work on versus products not to work on? In what way do these like tangibly create value for you and or your employees? Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're a people business, right? Like we sell software, but we're a people business and why we've been able to win has been the efforts of our people. And so ultimately, if we, we don't get that right, um, the business won't succeed and we won't hit our, our business goals. So I would say this was mission critical to get this right. And it does, you know, it does impact our recruiting efforts, who we're talking to, um, you know, behaviors we're looking for, case studies that we're looking to kind of align to our value system. Um, and then I would say how we reinforce these is we have a, you know, we're trying to build a, a culture of recognition and doing it in more of like a town hall form. So we've, uh, we've procured software to effectively um, be able to tag these values to recognize folks that, uh, you know, deliver on, on any of them. And so it's, it's one that, you know, we will assign actual points, which is, you know, there's a monetary value to those points. Um, so people are getting paid to recognize folks for the behaviors that really align to these values. So it's somewhat of a, you know, secular loop that we're trying to uh, install in the, in the business. And, and it's, it's worked so far. I think there's a version two to this that we're, we're thinking through, but it, it definitely helps at the foundation. Now, <clears throat> given that, um, at least 15 of the original employees are not folks that you originally hired, um, but you wanted to instill a concrete set of values into your organization. This might sound like semantics, but I think it actually is an important distinction. Can you walk me through, um, in terms of the, the the birth of these values, were they created or were they discovered? And, and I'll clarify what I mean. To create values means to, you know, come up with a list of values that you would like your organization to have. To discover values is to go through an exercise to try to discover 
or at least codify the values that already exist within your organization. Can you just talk about whether you took more of a create approach or more of a discover approach and, and why you decided to approach it in the way that you did? I think we went through the discovery process, but ultimately created what was important to us or, or you know, counterfactual to what we were seeing in, 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 in practice. So we, you know, we, we, we really felt like we went through the discovery to a learn what was important to everybody and to see whether that, that aligned to what was important to Mike and I, or ultimately like maybe there was values that were important to them that, you know, could have been true for the last 20 years, but won't be true for the next 20 years. Right. So um, we went through discovery, but ultimately we went through more of the, the, the value creation exercise. And given that you've you know been running the company for about two years, when did you start this undertaking, and how did you think about when to start, including the risk of potentially diving into an undertaking like this too early or potentially even too late? How did you think about timing and when to pull the trigger on this? Well, I will say, like our our uh, early hiring plan, we we definitely hired HR as one of our um, early hires in, in this whole thing, and and. She, Lindsay, who's our, our uh, head of HR, had a had a seat at the table to really you know lead the initiative. So I think setting the foundation early has helped us achieve the growth that we've you know been able to achieve. I mean, we were on on pace to to have tripled the business by the time the second year anniversary comes around in February. So it's been um, you know a, a Herculean effort to get this whole thing together and. Like I said, like we are a people business and and uh, whether it's investing behind our people and creating the right tools and frameworks for them to follow is has been pretty critical. Awesome. Let's move to uh, last but not least, change number three. Yeah, so this was more on, I would say, uh, the pricing side. We moved from an a la carte model where folks could piecemeal what they wanted to procure to an all-in-one pricing to one, I think, standardize the invoicing practices and two, align to market standards. So this has this has simplified our internal process, but also to the customers, you know, it's it's it it almost relieves them of the decision of of um, you know overthinking what they want and ultimately be able to benefit from all the products that we offer. Um, so it, it it has helped on on many fronts. What were some of the worries or concerns that you had before implementing a more simplified, streamlined pricing structure? And did any of those worries end up materializing? Yeah, I mean, I think the worry would be that you don't know how customers are going to react to it or prospects are going to react or if you know competitors change their strategy, you'll have to kind of you know, revert back. But I think ultimately those concerns did not materialize because a lot of these just come down to a conversation between yourself and who's ever on the other side. Um, and many people just understand the benefit once you walk through it. Um, I think the other thing too, is like when, when you give someone a ton of choice, um, you know, I think there's some data to suggest that it, it actually creates more confusion and, and more anxiety in the, in the buying process. So it's, it's been able to smooth out um, our proposal structure and be able to get things um, in front of customers in more of a, you know, an efficient manner. And to what extent did you look at competitor pricing, both the amount of the pricing and like the structure or how they wrap their pricing 
in coming to your decision or was this uh, largely internally based? Yeah, I mean, this was more of an internally based and I think this just helped us simplify how we were invoicing customers and also, um, like, you know, we'd have prospects come to us asking us if we did this, if we did that. And, and, and ultimately, you know, it created confusion when we, when we priced these things out separately. So like I said, like this, this completely simplified the pitch to the, to the, to the prospect. Um, but it, it wasn't really driven by any kind of, you know, market research. Awesome. Share it. We appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Steve. This episode is brought to you by Warren Coughlin, CEO, coach, and founder of Jumpstart Coaching. Now, I wanted to partner with Warren because one of my biggest regrets across my seven years as a CEO was not hiring a coach. And to the best extent possible, I want to prevent others from making that same mistake. Warren focuses exclusively on coaching CEOs running small and medium-sized businesses and has been doing so for over 20 years. And what I particularly love about Warren is the structured approach that he takes to working with CEOs, particularly within those first 90 days of the engagement to ensure that the foundation being built upon is a solid one. Within those first three months, he will help you establish a scorecard containing all of your key numbers in a single place. He'll help you build out a high-performing leadership team, and he'll share with you a proprietary tool to organize your execution plan, which will clearly outline who should do what by when. Best of all, working with Warren is effectively risk-free. If at the end of those first three months you are not happy with the direction of the business, he will give you your money back. If that doesn't say confidence, I don't know what does. On top of all of that, Warren is also offering $3,000 off of his coaching program for listeners of In the Trenches. Just go to warrencoglin.com forward slash trenches to learn more. Coglin is spelt C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. So before we dive in, Robin, maybe you can share with us a brief summary of what your company does and how long you've been running it for. Sure. So I'm Robin Kovitz, the president and CEO of Baskets, Inc. We're the premier gift delivery service in North America. Our mission is to make it quick and easy to send super impressive gifts to anyone in Canada or the U.S., there are really two sides to our business. So the first is our B2C or business to consumer side, which hopefully you've seen or used or experienced, Steve. And for example, if you want to send a baby gift to a friend across the country. Um, the other part of our business is our B2B or bus like business to business, which is more larger scale corping, corporate gifting capabilities. So for example, a law firm who wants to send gifts to its 300 employees or a loyalty program that sends hundreds of thousands of gifts to its members. We're an expert in that logistics of large-scale mailing and corporate gifting. I purchased the business in 2014, and so I've been operating it for the last eight years. And we were recently recognized by the Globe and Mail's Report on Business, <clears throat> excuse me, magazine, as one of the top growing companies in Canada for our third year in a row. I think, I think you had four, right, Steve? So we're just trying to catch up to you. <laughs> 
your checks in the mail. Thank you, Robin. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, it's it's such an amazing story, and I've uh, sent baskets as well as received baskets many times. Uh, and particularly as we're approaching the holiday season, I'm looking forward to receiving more. So, Robin, you've been on the job for eight years now. Presumably, you've had lots of successes and plenty of failures, as we all do. I'm curious, as you reflect back on your eight years leading this business after having purchased it from its um, original founder, can you share with us some of the seemingly small changes that you've made that ended up having an outsized impact, whether it be financial, operational, or even personal? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember when I first bought the business, every day, you know, you you work so hard, you close the deal, and then your first day operating I would ask questions and people would just kind of look at me blankly. For example, how many baskets did we make today? They weren't sure because they weren't they weren't tracking that. And so, well, ultimately in my first year, I implemented an ERP system, which is obviously a huge change. You can start with just measuring one thing. So for example, <clears throat> in my first week, I had the company start measuring just, just our daily production. And by getting the team focused on measurement, you can then have data, which would lead leads to better decision-making and ultimately better margins. How did you decide what to measure first? Because when you go into an environment where nothing is measured, the temptation is to try to measure everything all at once. So how did you decide where to start in your pursuit of just kind of measuring something? So like most things in entrepreneurship, I tried something and it failed miserably. And so then I tried something else. So, I mean, I did the typical investment banking analyst thing where I, I tried to measure everything, build a huge model and then present it to the team. And I realized after a while that they, that they really had no idea what I was talking about. And, and nobody, people didn't want to tell me that they didn't understand sort of the model and the, the plan. And so I realized then that I had to make it very, very simple. Um, and so I wanted to start with something in our business, you know, we do produce a good. So something that was very tangible that everyone could see. And also something where I thought that we could have some quick wins by increasing production and sort of build that momentum as a team. So I started with like what I perceived to be the most tangible and, and visible thing in the organization. Did you see any change in behavior as a result of measuring what you decided to measure? Yes, yes, dramatically, especially when you start measuring, uh, when, like you said, when you go from an organization that doesn't measure anything and you start with focusing on just one metric, I noticed a huge, huge change in behavior. So firstly, I noticed people sort of paying more attention to it and talking about it um, and then focusing on it. So I think before, you know, a day could pass and if you're not really aware of a target, a production target or, or what your actual output is, um, you know, you end up invariably producing less than what if you're focused on it and talking about how you can improve it. What gets measured gets done, as they say. Very interesting. Anything else that comes to mind uh, in terms of small changes that had outsized impacts? Yeah, I think another challenge that I faced as a young first-time and, and female CEO was hiring, recruiting, training, retention, the whole HR side, right? That mess that mm -hmm. we're that we don't really learn in school. Um, Baskets has the added challenge that it's a seasonal business. So we have a big peak in Q4 at the end of the year for the Christmas rush. Um, and because of that peak, we have sort of a bulge in terms of our staffing. And so we need to be able to 
onboard and train, hire, train, and onboard people very, very quickly. Um, and this was a big challenge that I saw when I first uh, joined the company, where it was taking three or four weeks to hire and then three or four weeks to train, and that the cycle was just too long given the, the season. And so something that we worked on was really automating our training and onboarding process, um, where it's videos, where it's, you know, disseminated across many team members. Um, and so we can, we can basically get people up to speed within three days of joining the company. Uh, and that way, we're really able to see whether they're, they're going to work or not, um, and sort of fire early if we've made a poor hiring choice. It also has given us a lot of confidence because, because we know that we're good at the hiring, training, and retaining, uh, like onboarding function, you know, it, we have the confidence to move someone out of a role if they're not really thriving, because we know that we can bring someone else in quickly and try and find a different spot for that person. So I think overall, by just focusing on training and onboarding and shortening that cycle and making it more automatic, we've really uh, improved our HR function. That's really interesting. Specifically, I, I want to ask a quick follow-up question as it relates to onboarding, because in my experience, you know, entrepreneurs the world over understandably put a lot of emphasis on hiring, but where we tend to drop the ball as a group is with respect to onboarding. And we had the same problem when I first purchased my business. I'm curious, how did you either find or make time um, to ensure that onboarding was a priority? The reason why I ask this is because our training videos were old and were outdated and everybody across the company almost universally understood that they needed to be updated. But frankly, it always lost the battle for people's time and attention um, because kind of the, the fire drill of the day always took precedent. How did you overcome that challenge to the extent that you faced it at all? Yeah, great question. I think I think that, you know, there are pros and cons to operating a seasonal business. And whenever I have the, the lucky um, benefit of being back on campus at HBS, Professor Ruback always says, you know, the, the benefit of having a seasonal business is that you have eight months of the year where you can really focus on change. And so what we did was we use our quiet season to work on these improve. We always do a post-mortem where we, where we get feedback from the entire company on what we went well in the season and what didn't. And then we spend our slow months really working on improving. And, you know, we'll pick three tangible projects and we'll tie people's uh, like off-season compensation to the completion of those projects. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very interesting. So we have investing in measurement under the spirit of what gets measured gets done. You focused on streamlining and automating the onboarding process so that new employees can be ramped up more quickly. Um, before we hit record, you provided me with two other things that you wanted to talk about today. So let's let's dive into one of those. Sure. I think taking feedback from the shop floor has been really transformational for us. So I think when you first buy a company, especially as a young or first time CEO, the instinct is to kind of touch everything and do everything yourself. But you know, when, when we all put on our employee hats, there's nothing less motivating than that. And so with time, I learned that while you can go really, really quickly on your own to go far, you really need to inspire vision and convince a team to go with you. And there's no better way to do that than by Mo uh, engaging people and motivating them by asking them and listening to their ideas. Um, and sometimes those ideas that are coming from the shop floor are much better than what you could have come up with on your own sort of top down because the people who are coming up with them do those tasks every day. Um, so for example, instead of 
back to the, the first measurement thing, instead of saying, you know, we need to produce X more units a day, you know, I challenge them to come up with ideas for how they wanted to increase production. And I think when those ideas come from the shop floor, people in my experience get much more excited about it. They, they last longer. Uh, and sometimes they even do better than, than the target because they're their ideas. There's this pride of ownership. Yeah, people tend to be more engaged in decisions where they feel like they uh, played a role in making that decision. I I'm curious how you go about doing this. I mean, do you formalize it and have one-on-one -on -one meetings with employees where you ask them? Do you do it more informally where you make a point to kind of walk around the office and walk around the shop floor on a regular basis? Very tactically, how do you go about kind of soliciting this feedback? both ways for sure informally i think uh managing by by walking around is really important and i think that's also something that we don't learn sort of on bay street or wall street because we're often sort of in this ivory tower uh for me i literally put blocks on my calendar every single day little blocks to walk around uh, we have a fifty-five thousand square foot facility and and look and see people and be seen uh and and observe things as they come up so informally for sure as you see things uh when even today this morning i saw someone moving a skid and i was asking why they were doing that and we were able to just kind of chat about it and figure out that maybe there was a better that there was an unnecessary step um <clears throat> but also formally i think we offer rewards for people uh, and we make a, a big fuss over people when they come up with great great ideas and we really encourage that and and there's no penalty for coming up with this a bad idea there are no bad ideas right so we create this like really safe environment where people can throw out their ideas and with huge um, rewards if if they're implemented can you think of an example of a change that you have implemented as a result of, you know, one of your team members presenting you with an idea? Yes, I have a, a very tangible example. There was this woman, of course, it came from a woman, right, Steve? Of course. Uh, driver, no, I'm just using, but we had a, a female delivery driver who was very frustrated and she said, She's she actually she was great. She came back with two pieces of advice. The first one was she said, um, it's so frustrating for me when I go to someone's house and they're not there and then I just leave. It's like they don't even know I'm there. What if I left like a door knocker card saying I was here, call us? And it was so simple and so smart. And I would have never come up with that because I'm not delivering gift baskets myself. Mm -hmm. um, but it was brilliant and we implemented it because, uh, you know, certain high value things or things with alcohol, we wouldn't leave on someone's front porch, but at least they know that we were that we, that we were there and they tried. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, um, one of the ideas that we discussed before we hit record uh, is a very personal one. So I'd love to dive into that one. Thanks. Well, I think, Steve, you've done such a great job pioneering this whole discussion about mental health in leadership and the toll that it takes to be a CEO. And frankly, just many people aren't like that. They haven't been talking about it. And I think I think you've been a pioneer in sort of opening that dialogue. Um, as a woman, I find I'm sort of more more open and transparent just by nature. I don't know if that's a gender stereotype or not. But um, for me, I think I didn't realize how intimidating we can be as CEOs to our employees. And so by being really open about my gaps, about the mistakes that I make and being and being able to laugh at myself, I think I've created the culture where people feel comfortable taking risks and, and also being open and active about their own self-improvement. So, um, you know, baskets is an environment where we try things, they fail. We try something else. There's no 
no shame in that. And, and we're all open about sort of the, the improvement plans that we're working, all the things that we're working on. And I've sort of taken this, this philosophy with my kids as well. And I think it's really important to not only work on your strengths, but also work on your gaps and, and be able to have a sense of humor about them and be, be a human, you know, not a robot as a CEO. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It, um, something that I've, I've spoken about in the past is this idea of the extent to which you should be vulnerable as a leader. So I'd be curious to hear your experience with this, Robin, because as a new inexperienced CEO, I, perhaps not at a conscious level, but I found myself overcompensating, which is to say that I knew I was young, I knew I was inexperienced. And as a result, I was very, very hesitant to be vulnerable because I felt like a bit of an imposter to begin with. As I got more tenure and more experience, I became more comfortable with being vulnerable because I felt a little bit less insecure because I had more experience under my belt. Did you, in your early days as a CEO, when you yourself were inexperienced and young, did you find yourself overcompensating by not being as vulnerable as perhaps you are now? No. Um, and I'm intrigued that, about your story. For me, I sort of put myself out there always and, and sometimes I get hurt, um, but I, it's just my personality type. I don't take myself very seriously. I think I can learn from anybody and everybody. Um, and, you know, I throw myself out there with authenticity always. Um, and so I, I think for me from day one, I, I just was sort of like, this is what you see, what you get. But I would sort of agree um, with your journey of developing that confidence. I think as a, as a first time CEO, I think I, I really wasn't confident in what I was doing. I mean, I was quite open about that. Um, but I think with time and, and, you know, with improvements in the business, I think you generate um, that judgment and that confidence in what you're doing. So there, there are some presumably newer CEOs listening to this who might be saying to themselves, I can't imagine uh, exhibiting that level of vulnerability myself. So maybe to get a bit more tangible, can you provide us with an example or two of, you know, what you were vulnerable or what you have been vulnerable about? And also, what have you learned by being vulnerable? Like what has being vulnerable from day one taught you about the extent to which leaders ought to be vulnerable in front of their employees? Mm, great questions. I think, you know, it's, I'm so excited about the way society is evolving because now there's this big conversation about neurodiversity and, um, you know, just being more understanding about all different types of people. And for me, mm. I think I find it really difficult. I find some of the social stuff very difficult. Uh, I, like I much prefer talking about work and um, and I also find it very difficult to lie. It's just, I just say what, what it is. Um, and so for me, I can definitely understand what you're saying. Um, but for me, I've just always sort of put myself out there with, with the full truth and, and dealt with the consequences for someone who is um, shy, more shy or scared to do that, I think. I think you could start with something very small. For example, one of my gaps is that I'm always late and it's just like almost become a joke at our company. Obviously it's not professional to be late, um, but I'm just not good with time. And we have other people in our company who are excellent with time, right? They, it's just their thing. And so I'm, we, we joke about that quite openly. So it's a small, simple thing, but I think it gives people uh, a lot of confidence knowing that they could have a skill that, that even the CEO doesn't have, right? Um, mm -hmm. and it helps create a bit more of an even playing field where there's a, this safer space for them to contribute and share and, and be engaged. Um, so I think it can be a little bit disarming and encouraging. 
Um, so for, for a first time CEO who's, you know, shy to kind of open the kimono, I would encourage them to start with something very small and something that's really seemingly to them inconsequential. And I think you'd be shocked by how much it influences the employees who are more intimidated of you than you might realize. Yeah, the idea of kind of humanizing yourself as a leader is is a really important concept and one that, frankly, it took me uh, too long to, to enact myself. One of the things, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, that I noticed once I actually did to decide to become more vulnerable was I found that um, vulnerability created vulnerability in others, which is to say that if I wanted my employees to be open and honest and genuine and forthright with me, I first had to demonstrate that behavior myself. Otherwise, it would be the equivalent of, say, you know, me encouraging everybody to take four weeks of vacation a year, but never taking any vacation myself. If, if I were to do that, employees would think that the behavior in question is implicitly frowned upon, regardless of what I say. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Have you found that your vulnerability has created vulnerability within the others who work at the baskets? Yeah, 100%. I think you see um, like the law of reciprocity working when you're vulnerable, people share things with with you in return and it does create these deeper bonds. Um, I think for me though, I just wanted to underline that I don't think it's just vulnerability. I think it's a combination of vulnerability and authenticity. I think it's that combination is very important because I think you can be vulnerable, but if it, if people see through it, it seems hollow. But I think it's that vulnerability of authentically showing something that that is truly truly vulnerable. Uh, mm -hmm. If you know what I mean, I think I think that's where you have the most impact. And yeah, I think I think it it attract like attracts like when you're vulnerable, other people feel that they can be vulnerable with you. Robin, that's a great place to end. Thank you for your time today. Congratulations on all of the success that you've had with Baskets. And I look forward to continuing to watch your success from afar going forward. Thanks, Steve. Great chatting with you. Adrian Bartha, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. Well, it's great to have you. And you are someone who has successfully exited a business. So before we dive into the meat and potatoes of our discussion today, can you share with us, just to set the table for the audience, a quick summary of what your company did, when you purchased it, how long you ran it for, and when you exited that business? Yeah, we, we purchased eCompliance, which is a, a health and safety e-learning company in 2012. Um, we, we effectively sold the company uh, two years later and used the funds to create a software company under the, the same name um, and ran that company for eight years until the end of 2020 and, uh, and uh, sold it to um, a, a larger um, UK-based company called, called Alchemist after running North American operations there for, for about a year. So it was about an eight year run. So as somebody who has run a small and medium sized business for eight years, and certainly having the perspective of somebody who has exited, as you kind of zoom out on that entire journey, as difficult as, as a task I know that is, can you share with us some of the seemingly small changes that you made as the leader of that company? 
that had an outsized impact, be it financial, operational, or otherwise? It's it's a great question because it's it's seldom asked, and it it, it did take some reflection, at least on my part, and perhaps some distance and uh, time from uh, from running the company. But um, th there was definitely three things that came to mind. Um, the first was collapsing our sales and marketing teams into one team. Uh, the second was really getting a great CFO faster, and the third was really treating my leadership team like mini CEOs rather than functional leaders. So all three of those things were more, I guess, organizational in, in nature, um, but they, they all had a huge impact in the long run and, and ultimately, I think, allowed us to be more successful than, than not. Um, so I'm happy to, to, to deep dive into each of them. Yeah, let's, uh, let's do a deep dive in any order that you choose. So the, the first one collapsing the sales and marketing team. I mean, we, we had a sales team, we had a marketing team, everything was pretty straightforward. I, but once those teams got over, I don't know, maybe 25, 30, 35 people um, on a combined basis, I just, I just saw there was a lot of complexity. There was a lot of meetings, there's different sets of KPIs. Um, it, and I just felt that you know, the, the bang for our buck with, with all the people and resources and talent we had on the team just wasn't, wasn't as much as I, I thought it could be. Um, and so, you know, we, we tried a number of things and then we realized, um, you know, as we continue to grow and scale this team and we had a, a budget getting up to like 50 or 60 people across those two teams, um, we, we realized the current model just wasn't going to work. Um, and so, what we did was maybe a little unconventional, I, I'm not sure, but we created one leader for the entire team. We called it sales and marketing, nothing creative there. Some people will call it a growth team, um, but we had one common set of, of metrics and one set of meetings. So, so decisions weren't made in a silo. And I think the other thing that spurred this decision was we looked at our buyer's journey. So how our customers invested in our software, we realized they didn't care about sales or marketing and they didn't necessarily follow um, a production line path of inbound and outbound. And it goes from marketing, it goes to sales. It wasn't as simple as that. And so I think when we reflected on that, we needed to, to unleash more of the creativity we had across the team um, and make decisions together rather than, rather than separate meetings and memos and all these types of things and cross-functionally working together just wasn't gonna cut it. So but once, once we put those teams together, we had common meetings, planning campaigns, um, planning priorities, planning goals, um, being creative, talking about what was working, not working as a group a lot more in sales and marketing. Um, we, we had a lot more success. We made decisions faster. We got to the truth a lot faster and we, we started having much better uh, results. Now, I'm curious on that one, what was the profile of the leader that ultimately assumed both sales and marketing? Because as, as, as interrelated as they are, at the end of the day, they are fundamentally different disciplines. And so was it a, quote, salesperson uh, leading the combined entity? Was it a, quote, marketing person? Was it more of like a CRO type of profile? Like, What's the profile of the leader? 
Yeah, in our case, it was the it was the head of sales. It, but I, I don't think it's necessarily you know one or the other. Um, I think what we realize is that you could have a great leader who runs that organization who, who's not um, who wasn't a marketing expert, but would defer to the great talented marketing people we had on the team when it came to 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 those skill sets. And so that was something that we had to put some trust in. It was a little bit of a leap of faith. Um, but we also realized that it wasn't possible to, to, well, it was possible, but it's not always easy to, to find someone who's really run and built both functions, um, you know, from the early days. And so we succeeded with having a sales leader in our case, run it. Uh, we had a very collaborative team and, um, it, and it, it, it made a big, a really outsized difference, you know, when we, when we, uh, look back on it. Was there anything specific about your business or your industry or your buyer's journey that made this a good idea for the company? I guess said another way, is this a generalizable lesson that you would apply to, you know, theoretically the next 10 companies that you would run? Or was there something specific about the context that such that this made the most sense? I think the context was probably... Uh, more suited to like a B2B context where, you know, the, the customers don't necessarily buy or purchase in a complete straight line. Like in some consumer businesses, not all, um, it, it might have a more of a straightforward uh, flow of, of how someone's educated about your product, what that requires and, uh, and so on. Um, but um Later on, I, I think as the buyers became more educated, the sale became more complex and more fluid and it didn't follow a straight line. It, it forced us to develop our, our content and our processes around our, our buyers a little differently. And so it wasn't as, as simple. And so we had to make decisions a little differently. We had to produce content um, a, a little bit differently and go to market a little bit differently. In, in all that experimentation, uh, we, we found that making those decisions together um, and having you know a, maybe a simpler way of looking at the funnel together was probably the only way we were gonna do that effectively in our case. So I don't know if that's applicable to all businesses, but I think one other lesson here might be to not take a function or, or what, what the title of a function is for, 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 for what it, you know, don't take it for granted, but don't, don't take it as gospel. Uh, you know, the, the, the lines between functions in your business is something you define. It's not necessarily something that's defined for you. And, and you could play with those lines for whatever happens to work. And in our case, collapsing those two teams together worked. And by the way, we are still able to scale those teams to a pretty big size under one leadership. And yes, there's other you know, hierarchies and so on uh, and processes underneath, but one common goal, one leader, um, you know, it, it, it really worked for us. It really gelled. Great. The second change you mentioned was hiring a, a great CFO. So I'd love to dig into that next. Yeah, I, I think this was one where I used to think of a great CFO as someone who, um, you know, they, they knew the finance and the accounting stuff inside and out. And later on, it, it wasn't until, 
you know, we, we got a great CFO and, and I was working with them more closely that I realized there's a lot more that a great CFO does. And, and I think at that point I realized, oh, I wish I had this person a lot sooner. And, you know, reflecting on it, you know, as a CEO, you, you want to spend your time on the most important things, but also the things that um, are indispensable to the company that only you can do. And usually those are things that, um, usually those are not the things a great CFO can do and, and handle. And so what I mean by that um, is not just the finance and the accounting and all that, all that stuff, of course, but it's, it's operational matters. Like for example, I used to have like the, um, you know, our, our CTO or head of sales or someone come to me with like a, a business plan or a proposal on, Hey, I want to do this and it costs this much money. And this is the return. This is why we should do it. And so on. And, and, you know, as, as someone who loves problem solving and, and, and these types of things, I would gravitate towards that and, and provide feedback. But, you know, a great CFO, I found, you know, if they're the first part, point of contact for some of that stuff, whether it's formally or informally, they help refine a, a, just a better business case with that functional leader so that when it does come to you as CEO, you know, you, you actually have something better in front of you to, to react to. And, and it also helps train, you know, other leaders in your company, but how to communicate decisions or ideas or, or opportunities. And so it's stuff like that, that I didn't realize till later is really important. And it builds a lot of strength within the leadership team and the company. And also, you know, to be a kind of a, a, a black hat towards the CEO, challenge the CEO, finding someone who's strong enough to challenge you as CEO on your ideas um, and your way of thinking, it only strengthens you as a CEO when you're communicating with your, your board or your investors or so on. And so those are some of the things that I wish I, I had a little earlier on um, in, the, in the journey. So a couple of comments and then an a follow-up question on this. Um, the first comment for whatever it's worth is that I had the exact same experience. If I were to answer the same question that I posed to you, this would probably also be in my top three answers. So I'll put that out there for whatever it's worth. Um, in terms of um, how any CEO spends their time, um, I really like what you said about doing the things that you are uniquely good at. I in, in talking to CEOs about this, I often say hire or delegate until you get to your unique ability. What are you uniquely good at? That's what you should be spending your time on. Everything else, wow. delegate or hire. Um, but here's where the question comes in. And, and I kind of faced this question myself before I decided to pull the trigger on this hire. Some CEOs of small businesses will say, look, Intellectually, I know I would benefit from a good CFO, but I only have so much free cash flow to play with as a small business, and I'm not sure if I can afford to pay a good one. On the other hand, an external observer might say, well, not only should a good CEO create value to ultimately pay for herself, but she'll create enough value to pay for the next person. So there's a bit of circular logic there saying, I can't afford it, but maybe we can't grow uh, until we um, pay up for someone of this caliber and skill set, how did you guys think about that circular logic? If you uh, dealt with it at all, yeah, I mean, in our case, we we there was a huge gap in um, in, in in you know, anyways, and so we knew we were going to hire for this this role, and so we we kind of went into it a little bit more naively, 
truthfully. Um, and then as, as things got going, we realized, wow, there's so much more that this role can do. And it really made me rethink, like, what, what should I be doing as CEO? <laughs> um, you know, rather than just doing the things that kind of pop up and you play a game of whack-a-mole, you, you keep busy and you feel like you made progress, but that's not necessarily progress. Um, how I would look at it today with, with your juxtaposition would be, you know, if you're, you're CEO of a small company, you're not sure, then I would say that shouldn't stop you from looking for that person because it might take you time to find that person. But once you meet them and um, once you find someone who could really add value and be your right hand in the company, because that's what a great CFO is. It's not just finance, accounting, or delegation of tasks. It's, it's your, he or she could be your, your right hand in many ways. And that has a lot of benefits, you know, just personally too. Um, but, you know, search for that person, start to meet them, define what, what great looks like. And if you meet them, you can make that decision at that time. And, um, and if you don't find someone who's, who's that special, then, um, then, then don't hire. <laughs> Yep. Yep. That's great. The third seemingly small change that you mentioned essentially had to do with empowering your leadership team at the risk of putting words in your mouth. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, we had, you know, heads, you know, the VPs of sales, customer success, technology, and all that stuff, you know, it looks simple on an org chart and it makes sense. It's easy to understand, but there was a point, an inflection point in our company that I realized a lot of stuff, a lot of decisions still came in front of me. Um, and a lot of founders, CEOs, you know, they, they don't mind that. They're, they're used to that. It's your, it's your inclination to, uh, to lean in and, and weigh in on those things. But I, I, I asked this question of myself, and I think it was one of my, my mentors who must have asked me this. He's like, well, if, if you were going to speed up and grow twice as fast, like, like what would that take? And not so much like, oh, we'll grow sales twice as fast, but like, like what would it physically take in terms of how the company works to, to do that? And I, I reflected on that and I realized I needed to not only give up control of, of, of um, certain decisions or, or areas of responsibility, I needed to help our, our functional leaders to act more like presidents or CEOs across the company. And so it really changed my mindset from saying, hey, we've got a great VP of customer success to be like, no, I'm, I'm hiring a president. And then their swim lane happens to be customer success. I'm hiring a, a president or a CEO with someone who has those capabilities you know, or, or close to them um, or, or mindset or leadership potential, but their swim lane is sales, for example. But in, in doing this, you know, I, I needed to also give enough free space and, and uh, give some room for, for these leaders to succeed or fail and to work with each other to lead the organization, almost as if, you know, I wasn't going to be there one day, which eventually was going to be the case. And so it, it, part of it was empowering them. Part of it was me unle or, um, letting go. But then there was a, a third part of it that was really coaching, getting them the, the professional resources they need to be a president or CEO one day, even if not all of them wanted to be that. But it, it was really getting them the resources they needed to be 
the best leaders. And, uh, you know, I, I'm proud that, um, you know, one of them is a, is a, is a CEO now and another one is uh, probably, you know, one, one step uh, pretty close to the way there. So I, I think that mindset and giving them that free space and showing them that that is possible one day with their careers, whether they liked it or, or wanted it or not, you know, really allowed them to rise up to their leadership um, potential and then some. And it, it also helped me, you know, just with this question of like, well, is my head of sales or head of whatever, you know, going to be the person I, I have when our organization is two or three X the size? And really, you, you can't answer that question unless you give people some runway to, to prove it for themselves. Um, so so it, it also helped me answer that question with, with those leaders as well. And that, that created a big cultural shift, I, I would say, within our leadership team and allowed myself as a CEO to really elevate myself as CEO what I was doing and how I was doing it. So in, when you speak of thinking of members of your leadership team as mini CEOs, I'm curious, tactically, how did you go about implementing this? Like, was this formalized in any way? You know, I don't know, uh, off the top of my head, you know, was there a dollar amount under which you said, hey, you make the decision above the a certain dollar amount, I'll make the decision. I mean, tactically, how did you implement this? Yeah, it's a great question. There, there was, there was a couple things. We created our leadership team, and I, we created this rise of the dot dot dot, and you know, we had each leader's name in it. And in this one pager or two pager, we we said, well, what will be different as a as a senior leadership team going forward? What will the what will you as VP of whatever do differently? going forward for, for all VPs in the company. So we, we almost set this bar. And, and if you look, read it, it, it was basically the responsibilities of effectively a president or CEO. And, and, and we agreed to that as an SLT. It's like, that's what, what you as a VP of whatever would be responsible for. And then, you know, my responsibility as CEO was, was really to, to help them get there. Um, and so writing it down, agreeing to it, bringing it back to, to examples, because inevitably people's behaviors gravitate back towards what they're used to. So, you know, our head of technology, our CT, you know, would come to me and say, hey, I've got this. And, and I would say, well, let's go back like to the, you know, this rise of the CTO document. You know, what what do you need to make this decision? Because I'm not going to make it for you. That's your decision, right? Mm -hmm. And really push it back on many of them, but also encourage them and help them get outside resources or introduce that CTO to other CTOs, um, you know, rather than look to me <laughs> for, for, you know, a final technical decision when I'm not a technical founder. So um, those little things helped us practice them, but it was definitely hard behavior to shake and some leaders rose to the occasion more than others and were more excited about it. Others were a little, you know, of course, a little anxious about, you know, a higher bar, but, but ultimately I think it created a lot of self-reflection for each of them because a lot of strengths and weaknesses became apparent in the, in the process for, for all of us. Um, and, and we talked about it openly as a group, um, 
and uh, and that also help you know people bond as a as a team and not not feel like they're uh, they're being singled out or or performance managed so to speak. Final question for you before we let you go, Adrian. Um, I'm curious, how difficult was that for you personally? And the reason why I ask that is because I think at an intellectual level, almost every CEO that I know is interested in spending more of their time on the business and less of their time in the business. And so in a way, they kind of all want to let go of the vine, so to speak. But in actual practice, this is one of the hardest things for small business CEOs to actually do, despite their preferences to do it, um, which is to say that it's it's really hard. And that's why most people don't do it. I'm curious how difficult was, you know, quote, letting go for you personally? It, it was very difficult. Um, yeah, make, make no question. But I I was helped by, by practicing this uh, this weekly and month or yeah, weekly behavior of when I would show up to, to Monday meetings or Friday meetings, I would, I would tell, you know, whether I was joining a, a meeting of a certain team or whether it was a leadership meeting, I would say, I would just repeat what my priorities or, or my, uh, how I was spending time that week. And so sometimes, you know, I would say, well, I, I, I'm really interested in helping the sales team with this one problem this week. I I, I want to I want to help. That that's going to be you know my 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 mission for the week. In addition to you know one other thing. And so it's not that I would completely lean out of all decisions. I would just be very targeted and very transparent with the one or two things I would focus on at whatever level it was. And and I think that helped people understand I wasn't becoming distant from the business or the team or the people. I was actually able to spend more time going deeper, but in a smaller number of things. And and I think um, that also satisfied my my own desire to just um, you know continue to you know understand and be part of the business and and uh, be part of the nervous system of the business and and um, and be responsive to it. But without being all, all places at all at all times, and um, so so that's how we, we kind of got the best of um, of both worlds. But it it took me being accountable and kind of me you know practicing what I was preaching uh, with that on, on a on a weekly basis. Yep, makes sense. Um, Adrian, congratulations on all of your success. I've been admiring it from afar for many years now. And uh, thank you very much for being generous with your time and joining us today. (laughs) Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks Thanks for having me. Hey guys, it's Steve here again. Now that we have reached the conclusion of our four CEO mini case studies, I thought I would take a crack at summarizing a few of the things that we've learned today. Importantly, I think there is something to be learned from what was similar across each of the four answers that we heard today, and I think that there is an equal amount to be learned from what was different across each of the answers. Before we get into those lessons, it's likely worth mentioning why I put this episode together in the first place. In short, it was to pressure test my hypothesis, which was generated through my own experience as a CEO that company growth and company success more often result from the accumulated impact of a large number of seemingly small changes as opposed to a smaller number of more drastic changes or gestures. 
So with that in mind, let's start with what lessons I extracted from what was common across each of the four case studies. And for me, three key themes emerged. So the first theme was pricing. In many of the stories that we heard today, including my own story, which we didn't hear today, pricing is a lever that CEOs often pull that has the potential to create outsized positive impacts. More specifically, we often see some combination of either pricing simplification, as it's reasonably common to see small businesses build up relatively convoluted pricing models over time, and or B, price increases, though of course, the extent to which you're able to increase your own prices depends on your company's pricing power, which is something that I've blogged about in the past and would invite you to check out if you're questioning the extent of your company's pricing power. The second theme revolves around the CEO creating a greater sense of organizational clarity. And one way to create that sense of organizational clarity is through a formalized mission, vision, and values exercise. These types of exercises are often fundamental components of operating systems like EOS or the Rockefeller Habits, but if you're not yet ready to implement such a system, you can still formalize your company's mission, vision, and values in the absence of them. In my case, implementing EOS was one of the best things that I did for my company. I did so in 2015, and formalizing our mission, vision, and values was a critically important component of that. It's not at all abnormal for small and medium-sized businesses to try to be all things to all people. When these companies were just getting off the ground 10 or 20 years ago, that was a perfectly understandable approach for them to take. But now that they've grown well beyond that embryonic state, there are often high returns to focus and discipline. In fact, in Patrick Lencioni's excellent book, The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive, Three of the four obsessions related to the concept of organizational clarity. The first is to create it, the second is to over-communicate it, and the third is to reinforce it through systems. And finally, there's the theme of people, which will be totally unsurprising to most CEOs listening to this. In the four case studies we heard today, the CEOs did some combination of A, removing the wrong people, B, adding or hiring the right people, or C, if those right people were already in the company, but just didn't have the autonomy or the decision-making authority to truly reach their potential, then they explicitly empowered these people to do so. Again, in small businesses, it's not at all abnormal for the original founders to play an outsized role in the business, fitting the genius with a thousand helpers mold. Next, let's discuss what I learned from what was different across each of the four case studies today. In short, I learned two primary things. First was that we're likely onto something when we suggest that seemingly small changes can often have a very outsized impact, be it financial, operational, or even personal from the perspective of the CEO. The second most important lesson to be learned from the differences is that there simply is no formula for how to do this. Building, managing, and growing a company is an enormously complex and multivariable undertaking. And as a result, there simply is not a single correct way to do it. If you haven't yet implemented some of the tools and practices that we discussed today within your own business, then it's at least worth considering doing so. But don't be too alarmed if some of them don't seem to apply to you or your specific circumstances. Anyhow, I hope you found this episode to be helpful. I will see you next time.